0: Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR and this week we're asking whether Europe's elections are safe. It's 2017 and as we enter a new year many people think it's going to be measured out in national elections. We saw how disruptive elections could be and referenda could be in 2016 with the Brexit vote and the election of Donald Trump. And many people are wondering whether we could see similar upsets take place in the Netherlands, in Germany, in France, in Italy, in the Czech Republic. And uh, to name just a few of the countries that will be going to their people to ask them for a democratic mandate during the year. And underlying that focus on the election season is a question about whether these elections are gonna be hacked, whether fake news will define them, and whether Europeans will see their electoral battleground reshaped by forces from outside. In many ways, it's the mirror image of the last decade where Russia and China and other countries worried about colored revolutions which were orchestrated by the CIA, and by Europeans and had uh, uh, a neuralgic aversion to the idea of democracy promotion. Now they claim the boot is on the other foot and Europeans and Americans are fearful of other people interfering in their democratic processes. To help us make sense of this set of challenges, we have uh, Stefan Soisanto, who is uh, the Digital Fellow at ECFR. Kadri Leek, who's a senior policy fellow who is an expert on Russia. And Gustav Gressel, also from our wider Europe programme, who's written a lot uh, about Russia, its military revolution, but has also been doing some work on its role in Europe's domestic politics. So Stefan, the last few weeks have been absolutely uh, chock-a-block with stories about Russian hacking and uh, attempts to influence the the US elections. What do you think we can take from that as we look forward to to the European election season?
1: Um, So what we currently witness in the United States is um, a discrepancy between uh, law enforcement and the intelligence community on the one hand and essentially, the public on the other. Um, so there's a, a huge divide in terms of what is the evidence out there that Russia hacked the DNC. What is the evidence out there that Russia influenced the U.S. election 2016? Um, and um, essentially, what we are what we are dealing with here is um, that the that these law enforcement agencies, and intelligence, com- and the intelligence community is not releasing that evidence publicly. And so so it's very, very discomforting for the overall U.S. public to trust their agencies when you have to keep in mind that they have been to the Snowden affair, that they've walked this path, and there's not a lot of trust that's currently out there um, that the public wants to hand out. Um, Essentially, um, this has been verified in a certain degree um, on uh, December 29th uh, when the FBI and the DHS came out with with its latest report on um, Russian hacking activities and they called it Grizzly Step and essentially the report was, well it was a hurried report it was not very comprehensive and it was quite amateurish in a sense and uh, the information, and it was criticised from all sides uh, because um, it, it just not lived up to the expectations people had in terms of, uh, okay, now we get a final report where there's technical evidence that we can work with that really points the finger to Russia, but the product they 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 essentially released was was not worth the paper it's written it was written on. And uh, essentially, what what uh, what came out of that report was the aftermath, or the political aftermath, in a certain sense, that uh, the Washington Post uh, essentially published uh, an erroneous story two days later about uh, Burlington Electric, which is a, a utility in Vermont that was supposedly hacked by Russians or uh, by a Russia campaign, essentially on the elect- U.S. electricity grid and uh yeah the story essentially went all over the place um we had uh the vermont governor uh, come out and uh, the senator of vermont essentially calling calling out putin like uh, like really uh, really an aggressive stance toward russia and calling them out uh, in the end it turned out that the ip connected to this malicious traffic was uh was maintained by yahoo uh, and the malware that was on the computer was Nutri malware, malware or Nutri exploit kit, which had no relation to Russian APT uh, groups whatsoever. What well, does APT mean? Uh, APT? Uh, APT means advanced persistent threat actors, which is an acronym that describes either uh, state-sponsored groups or essentially state agencies because they have advanced capabilities and
0: they're usually very persistent in getting into a network. OK, so you think it's all a bit overblown. What, what does, What's the debate in Moscow been? Has there been a lot of triumphalism about um, uh, Russia's impact on the US elections in Moscow?
2: Um, not really. Moscow was, of course, very happy when Trump won the election. That, that one could see. But Russian interference in, in US elections has not been widely discussed, uh, partly because it's an embarrassing topic, I guess. There was one person who admitted that Russia may have helped Trump with WikiLeaks a little bit. But you do not know if that is credible information or not. My own instinct has always been to think that if Russia intervened in some way, then that was to punish Hillary as opposed to helping Trump. Because if Putin thinks that Hillary tried to bring him down in 2011 when Putin announced his comeback then that is serious and very personal. And he would try to do something. That fits his character, that is logical. To try to bring Trump to presidency, that to me was never very credible because Russians I think have been quite conservative in their understanding of US elections. I don't think they expected Trump to win. Putin recently said that he believed he would win. I think that was a lie. He didn't look like that. I I met with Putin at Valdai meeting in late October. He didn't look like someone who was expecting Trump to win. So I think their interference might have been, but it probably was always a little bit more modest than one could assume when reading American press. And the big lesson of a full case to me is exactly that one needs to treat such cases with utmost care and, and precision. Because if you overdo it, And if you use it for partisan political purposes, then as a result, you will lose all credibility as a politician, as an agency, whatever. So that would be my message to everyone. Try to be very precise when speaking about such things and make sure you have the evidence. Make sure you know what you're speaking about.
0: So they may not have thought that uh, they were going to get Trump elected and that might not have been the goal. But given that... You know, how the election was super close and that any one of uh, a number of things might have actually taken Trump over the edge in a few key states. Do you think that has changed the Russian sense about how effective they can be if they, if they get involved either through hacking or through supporting political parties in other countries or through fake news or some of the other measures which uh, Russia has been accused of, of exporting from its own domestic politics into other countries?
2: Yes, that is actually a key question that I keep asking my, myself and I do not yet have an answer because... I think trush, Russia was trying to subvert, subvert the West, uh, to destabilize it, but they didn't expect to be um, the West to be as fragile as it has proven to be. Uh, so now, after Brexit and and Trump win, my question is exactly the same: Will will Russia see that we are fragile and uh, act more forcefully, or? Do they think that they can get what they want from Trump? And do they try to demonstrate more responsible behavior in return? So, there is also an option that they will de escalate because they see that the world is um, very unstable anyway, and actually. Putin is someone who values stability. So, if he thinks that he can get what he wants from Trump without increasing instability, then actually the effect can also be the opposite. They can de-escalate and they can intervene less than would however have been the case.
0: It was certainly striking how uh, much Putin sought to de-escalate the situation after these uh, spies were expelled from uh, from Russia. Uh, sorry, from from the U.S. and and, and Obama. Added to the sanctions against Russia uh, as a punishment for the, for the sanctions. But Gustav, you're sitting in Berlin, which is a city that is in the early stages of election fever. Everyone's looking forward to, to the autumn and the head of the German intelligence agencies has, has warned a lot of people that Berlin could be next. Um, how do you think about the situation and, and what's the uh, assumption amongst uh, both the political class and also the intelligence communities and others about how the German elections are going to get conducted?
3: The, the domestic debate in Germany has been overshadowed by, by the Berlin attacks in, in December. And we have now a political debate that is dominated by, by domestic security issues, but uh, they're not connected to Russia. It's counterterrorism, uh, asylum, refugees, etc. Although we had tangible Russian attempts to, to at least influence the public debate uh, over the last years in 2015, confidential files about the NSA Parliamentary Committee, a committee looking into the connections of German and American intelligence and how the revelations of the NSA scandal would touch on German intelligence, uh, was hacked, was stolen from the Bundestag servers that were classified protocols and they were leaked, and the head of the German counterintelligence made a public statement that he's sure that uh, Russian governmental services were behind that hacking attempt, which for Germany is very unusual because they usually don't uh, come forward with any sort of tangible accusation on who stole what. And he also said that uh, in the last month of 2016, there was an increase of hacking attempts of Russian intelligence services against governmental facilities, servers, parties, and other political actors, which they expect to be uh, targeted at the Bundestag elections. Now, the interesting thing is, of course, we don't know what has been stolen yet. Uh, The Germans know where the attempts were foiled, but you, you don't know which attempts were successful. Uh, till the day they are sort of made public and how how useful they are to the Russians and how they might make use of them. Uh, so there can be a surprise uh, of which we don't know. Apart from that, we had also sort of non-internet interferences, also to say a very clumsy one. If you remind last year the case Lisa heard uh, a sort of a made-up story about a Russian girl being abducted and raped by Muslim migrants, and sort of after a huge uproar that that was echoed even by Sergei Lavrov, uh, it turned out to be a fake story uh, and basically backfired at at sort of Russia's image in Germany quite extensively. As as far as sort of the Russian intention in Germany. Um, I I may think that I don't think that like in the uh, sort of like in the Trump case that Russia has any particular goal in in sort of putting someone in the power seat in Berlin. It's rather some kind of the, us- the usual destabilization tactics you use when you when you see uh, a confrontation and sort of to to weaken your enemy or to bother your enemy at home and make uh, make them distracted from other cases, and as Germany is sort of the the centerpiece of the old Europe, the centerpiece of maintaining sanctions and the centerpiece of supporting ukraine uh, there there is sort of enough
0: stuff. Russia is
3: angry at berlin
0: so Stefan, if if you were sitting in one of these Russian intelligence agencies thinking about the the kind of menu of options, what are the different ways that um, you could actually? Envisage uh, getting involved in a Western election campaign.
1: Well, um, I think there, well, there are numerous ways to get to to essentially interfere in the elections in both in Germany and in France. But I think what we have to keep in mind is that. Um, we only focus on the election hack because it happened in the United States in terms of, um, that somebody got into the DNC, which is supposedly, um, Cozy Bear and Fancy Bear, which are both, uh, the Russian intelligence services, respectively, the FSB and the GRU. But, um, when you actually look at the, 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 the malicious threat actors from Russia that we deem to be state-sponsored or state entities, there are at least five out there. So it's the, the, uh, the Cozy Bear and the Fancy Bear. Again, GRU and the FSB. There is the Sandworm team. Um, there is Waterbug, and there is Dragonfly. So those are five very different threat actors. And what is interesting, what all the reports—they've so all
0: got really cool names. But who they are all who's got really cool names. cool names,
1: exactly. And that's the very <laughs> difficult part: who is behind those names? Um, that we haven't figured
0: out yet. Uh, not for all of them. Maybe Kadri knows. Kadri, <laughs> do you know who's behind these cool names? <laughs> Sadly not. Sadly not. Um, but what so is it? what's happened? I wonder. One wonders what's where, where, where with a think tank research. If you can't tell us who, who, what are they called again?
1: Um, it's uh, Fancy Bear, Cozy, <laughs> cozy Bear. It's Dragonfly, it's Waterbuck, <laughs> and it's the Sandworm team. Okay. So and all these five threat actors, um, what is interesting that nobody in Europe raises is that these five threat actors are primarily targeting European governments, European companies, and European individuals. So if we look, for example, at Cozy Bear who hacked into the DNC, they're also very primarily responsible for ta- hacking into NATO, for hacking into the OSCE, for hacking into France's TV Saint-Mont, who hacked the German parliament. And and they also hacked into the Estonian governments and all the other ones. Um, so the same is true for WaterBuck, for example, who are primarily compromising web service in uh, France, Germany. Um, Spain, and Romania. So the United States, for example, when it comes to waterbuck, they're just infected by like 4% of the overall uh, worldwide service that are out there. So there's a kind of narrative that the Europeans have not captured yet because we are the primary targets, but we are talking about the United States and think, oh, maybe this will happen to us. This is already happening to us. We're just not having a kind of coherent discussion about it, and we're not having a foreign policy in the making to react.
0: It sounds, from what you're saying, that the actual hacking is less important than some of the other ways that uh, Russia could consider getting involved in things like, for example, well, releasing the results of the hacks and, and get creating embarrassing stories in the media. Um, I, I don't know whether uh, support for parties is a big deal or not. I know, Kadri, maybe you, you, you can tell us a bit more about some of the... the Toing and throwing on that, but there was certainly a French uh, uh, angle to the to the to the loans because the the uh, National Front did get a big loan from a Russian bank, didn't it? Uh,
2: yes, indeed, uh, they did, and now the banks are um, asking it back, and that has been a small sensation lately in the uh, circles of Russia watchers, and people are wondering what's behind it. Um, I can. I can think of three explanations. One is that Russia is more happy with François Fillon, who is an establishment candidate whom they like, and they want to express their support to him by withdrawing their support to Marine Le Pen. That would make perfect sense, because I don't think Russia likes anti-establishment parties per se. Russia just uses them if there are no establishment parties available, but if they are, they would definitely resort to establishment. A second option, uh, a second explanation is is the same we already talked about, that Russia in general wants to de-escalate now that Trump is about to come to power, and and therefore withdraws its support to more extreme forces. Um, And the third and final one uh is it, a banal one maybe maybe simply it's time to pay the loans back you know maybe maybe they are just acting by the book the banks and and the state simply doesn't intervene with that um so that could also be the case
0: okay so that's the that's the the loans but i mean how serious do you think this is? you come from a country Estonia, which is um, lives in a permanent state of fear about Russian interference, both uh, cyber war, because that was one of the Estonia was one of the first countries where uh, which were recipients for these kinds of activities, but also just general interference through uh, fake news through uh, Russian minorities there, etc. Do, do you think that the whole of the rest of, the, of Europe is going to learn what it's like to be Estonian now?
2: Um, occasionally, yes. Uh, that's the conversation I have had with some Germans. Uh, I welcome them to this, our version of Russia because for many years they just didn't experience the sort of Russia the Baltic states did. Now in a way I think tables have been turned and um, I don't think Russia is actually demonstrating its most aggressive thing place in the Baltics uh, anymore. Uh, I think the Baltic states have reasonable immunity. Uh, People here know that they they need to be critical of any news coming out of Russia. They are watchful, they are cautious, these things are being uh, discussed. But I think Western part of Europe doesn't have such immunity. They still think that Russian news sources are just like any other news sources. It's um, maybe now, after, after the whole noise uh, about American elections, people are getting more critical about the source of the story they are reading. And, and they start wondering whether it's credible or, 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 or manipulated. But clearly, until very recently, Western part of Europe was was more uh, vulnerable.
0: Kadri, the other way of looking at it, though, is that for all the fuss about Russia's attempts to infiltrate um estonia and other baltic states it's not been a track record of huge success over the many years and uh, it hasn't certainly hasn't produced many very pro-russian governments in in estonia i mean is it possible that everybody in the other member states is is becoming as paranoid as the estonians are but for as few but, but, uh, but that it's false place paranoia because um None of these things really do work very well. They have much of an impact. It's unlikely that uh, that it's the Russian contribution which will uh, result in Marine Le Pen succeeding or failing in her bid to become president of France.
2: Up to a point, yes, um, you could say that in a partly even, uh, recent attacks from Russia have had a silver lining, only because. Uh, for example, cyber attack to Estonia made Estonia to become a cyber power. That's when that became a big topic here and people started to develop expertise. And now, you know, that's something that Estonia is, is known for and, and exploits it and enhances its its credibility. And likewise, also the whole range of um, manipulative behavior that occurred at the same time. That was 2007, when Estonia relocated a war memorial, and and that's when the that cyber attacks happened, that's when Russian minorities protested and rioted, and a few other things. So basically, nowadays, this is learned as, as, as a lesson, uh, because when I talk about hyper threats from Russia, This would look very much like what happened in about 2007 so basically there is a case there on which to base lessons learned and that is actually pretty useful when preparing for the future but there is still a downside as well i would say i think still fear of russia and fear of russia's manipulation affects the quality of discussion sometimes people cannot come up with points that might endorse russia's viewpoint or that might sort of helpful to might seem to be helpful to to moscow and i i do mind it i think if you are a sovereign country you can criticize your government when and for what you please and you shouldn't think about what russia makes of it either positive ways and you please, or in negative ways
0: so in a way it's be- it shows that it's kind of been super counterproductive but i, I was wondering gustav because you spent a lot of time in in ukraine and in a way ukraine for many westerners is the- is a symbol of, of russian paranoia that, you know there's barely a demonstration that takes place in in Ukraine or in other countries that is not attributed to the CIA or or George Soros or some other kind of external source. Are we now becoming as paranoid as the Russians and seeing kind of reds under every bed um, around Europe and blaming Russia for all sorts of things which are going on, which actually have much more Uh, logical explanations closer to home for example you know the rise of Trump all of these populist parties it it seems to me that the the kind of key drivers for them are domestic you know even if if Russia uh, spontaneously combusted and and disappeared they would still be uh, a national front in France UKIP would still uh, be a political phenomenon in the UK And uh, it's kind of a bit too easy to blame Russians for everything that's uh, that's going uh, uh, on in in Western politics and making it unpredictable.
3: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I think that it is sort of quite easy to explain this kind of behavior when you have sort of the Russian scapegoat. And there are many reasons why there is dissatisfaction among the electorate, disillusionment among the electorate. Um, with with the current elites so or with decisions that have been taken, um, I I also found that sort of a lot of established parties have become lazy in mobilizing their own support, their own followers, um, putting out their own point of view, sort of hiding behind sort of words like there is no alternative or uh, you can't guard borders or whatever. Um, to, to sort of shut cor- uh, co- uh, shortcut a debate and and this 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 backfired as well um, the second thing to this angle is that for a lot of actors, especially sort of anti establishment parties right wing parties ultra conservative movements who in parts of europe has all, have always been stronger than than in in for example northern or very western Europe, if you look at central Europe or southeastern Europe um they they don't need to be sponsored by Russia or or, or sort of cheered by Russia, they cheer Russia for their own reasons because it rather resembles a kind of political system they want to create of their own. And, and like like during the Cold War, no, not everybody who was a communist or had sympathies with left-wing thoughts or protested for for a cause that might be exploited, might have been exploited or beneficial to the Soviet Union, uh, was a KGB agent. So so we need to be careful with that. Now, on Ukraine, sort of the special thing about Ukraine is that Ukraine was infiltrated and penetrated by Russian intelligence to an extent that is unimaginable for for the rest of the Europeans, and hence it still is, even for moderate Ukrainians, very difficult to really sort of distinguish uh, what is Russian influence and what not, and of course there's also a lot of blaming on Russia. For for the incompetence of their own economic or political elites or part of that elite fractions, but uh, but the problem is that during the course of the war in Ukraine, Russia has used so many covert tactics and infiltrators, false flag attacks, uh, you name it. That that basically uh, even even for the most cautious watchers, it is it is really hard to sort of, um, not get caught by this by this impression to, to attribute a lot of things to Russian influencing and meddling. Um, and at some point it makes you paranoid. That might be a side effect. Um, but also sort of the other experience, I come from from a sort of central European, very conservative, or socially conservative country, for, and for a large part of my country's population, the EU, and sort of the libertarian discourse led by the part of the UK or Sweden, was such a cultural shock that basically to absorb this cultural shock um, somehow sort of melts into politics and that's something that even if Russia would not exist uh, would take place in our political systems and these sort of debates that now have the Russian labels because the the actors point at Russia as their sort of um, showcase to emulate would would have, they would embrace the Philippines or they would embrace Trump or whomever, sort of. If you want to make a point about social conservatism or whatever, you, you find some examples somewhere.
0: Okay, for those of you who can't recognise it from Gustav's perfect English, uh, the country to which he's referring is Austria. Um, anyway, so let's uh, keep Talking about these things as we go through the different elections, we'll see whether they really are safe or not, how much attention they attract from other powers, how much they are driven by endogenous forces or external ones. But I think the, the overall consensus from this discussion seems to be that maybe the threat is being somewhat overblown by the media and that uh, it's important to, to keep it in perspective and not get overly paranoid as we go through this complicated election season. We have one thing left to do in this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. So, um, Kadri, why don't you go first? You're always a big reader. What's on your bookshelf at the moment? Last time we spoke, you had a, a kind of huge selection of books about world order. Have you, have you managed to read them all yet, or are you still plowing your way through them?
2: no uh but i switched the topic anyway um and now well you mentioned that we have just started 2017. so now i'm actually reading about 1917 uh the russian revolutions i have two books with me one is the famous memoir by french ambassador at the time maurice polo who writes about what russia is like in the years 1915 16 17. The uh, second book I have is Nicholas Harvey, Witnesses of the Russian Revolution, and that deals with um, mostly British and English witnesses of what happened in St. Petersburg in 1917. Enjoyable reading, especially to me, because I have studied these things a lot, but in the Soviet version, so now to look from a different angle is so interesting.
0: Yeah, the only eyewitness thing I remember reading as a child, I haven't looked at it since then, was Jack Reed's, um, 10 days that shook the world. So, uh, it'd be interesting to know how the American and, um, uh, witnesses differ from the, from the French and the British ones. Stefan, what's on your bookshelf? Uh, on my bookshelf, I'm currently
1: reading, um, uh, Michael Hayden's, uh, 2006 book called, uh, Playing It On, the, uh, Playing to the Edge, American Intelligence, uh, in the Age of Terror. Um, which is a very neat book on how Michael Hayden essentially looks at his career as a uh, director of the NSA, director of the CIA, and as ODNI. Um, so it's, it's very informative, particularly if you want to have a look into what the intelligence community is about, what do they think, and uh, how do they um, communicate, uh, both with Congress and the public. Um The second book that I would recommend, it's not really a book, but uh just to keep your mind fresh is the GCHQ puzzle book, which is really neat. Uh, it's very, uh, very difficult, but I think everybody should get it just to have a look at what is out there and how you can like g- dive into cryptography
0: and stuff like that. What about you, Gustav?
3: well i'm I'm typing surveys, so uh, there's not much time for reading but on on sort of on the shelf with a big sign "Read me, read me besides sort of very boring technical stuff like Russia the Western military intervention and nuclear strategy in the modern age, I still actually have bloodlands which i, I always say that after the next sort of after the next book I need to read, I want to read this one um yeah, because basically dealing with Ukraine, it's sort of the must read. In any case, I want to recommend to, to others.
0: So I was reading over the Christmas break a fantastic book, which uh, lots of people seem to be reading at the moment. But it's called Homo Deus by the Israeli um, kind of great popularizer of, of kind of long-durée histories, um, Yuval Noah Harari. Um, and it's essentially a book about how, uh humanity has entire world used to be dominated by these three big phenomena of famine war and disease uh which used to seem so huge that they were beyond our control but we've now got to a position where we've more or less solved these three big problems so more people are now dying of suicide than of than in wars are dying of obesity than starvation and uh disease when it erupts across the world in pandemic form, like with Ebola, we see it as uh, as a failure of our public health systems rather than as some kind of supernatural force which uh, which can uh, completely dominate the world and, and wipe out enormous sections of, of populations in different countries. And in their place, he he argues that we're going to have a quest for three big things. The first is immortality. Second is happiness, uh, which is now being seen as a right. And thirdly, uh, most uh, extremely, the idea of divinity, that we're all basically trying to look for supernatural powers for ourselves, that maybe not the kind of powers of a Christian uh, monotheistic God, but more like the kind of cool stuff that that um uh, gods in other religions like indian religions or the greeks and the romans could do um and uh, and that that's really got to kind of define uh humanity for the next period ahead and it's it's very very thought provoking book um which also argues that a lot of the things that philosophers uh, dealt with over the last few centuries are now going to become technical problems, which 23 year old programmers at Uber and Google are going to be uh, seeing as, 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 uh, as kind of everyday uh, challenges in their, in their work. So, uh, anyway, certainly put some of the discussions we're having at the moment in, in perspective. So that was uh, the end of this week's podcast. If you've enjoyed it, please do tweet about it um, and write about it on your Facebook pages and, in fact, on ours, which is uh, Facebook www.facebook.com slash ECFRthinktank please uh, do go to our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcast where you will see links to some of the publications that we've done on Russia's interference in uh, other elections as well as the books that we've all recommended and if you have any comments for us and you would like us to do things differently or want to react to any of those things don't hesitate to write to me at but for now, from Stefan Soesanto, Gustav Gressel, Kadri and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The editor of ECFR's podcast is Pauline Goemin.